0: Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Edward, CEO and co-founder of Convelio, an art logistics platform that's raised 44 million in funding. Edward, thanks for chatting with me today. Pleasure, thank you for having me. To kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure, so as, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm Edward, I have French, I'm
1: Swiss, I grew up in Switzerland, I essentially studied economics before working for um, a company called Rocket Internet, which is infamously known in the U.S. for propagating quite a lot of business models and bringing them to near the near point Southeast Asia, which is why I spent quite some time. Where I met my co-founder Clément, with whom I started a business, another business before Comvideo, and then we uh, stumbled upon the problem of final shipping, which uh,
0: we're still into today. Mentioning Rocket Internet here on a, a podcast that's based in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, that's a, its a bold move. I feel like I'm, it's a very hated, hated company. I don't think as much, but I feel like 10 years ago, that was like the rival or you know, the enemy of uh, Silicon Valley. Which I can't understand. So it's, <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was a good training
1: execution wise, it, it was a very good training, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously quite a lot of
0: controversies around Rocket. Yeah, I have a bunch of friends who work there and yeah, they went on to build companies and, and they've been very successful. They all you know talk about just, <laughs> it was a crazy learning experience. I think is how they describe it. So for you, what was that like? Is there like a key takeaway or anything that you really learned from that experience? Well, there are, I mean, there are many,
1: but if I had some question, if I had to summarize that in a couple of, of points, I mean, I think there is the classic kind of, you know, execution, eat strategy for breakfast kind of thing, because obviously I mean, Rocket was not inventing new business models. um, So they were taking new business models, bringing them in other geographies. And the only thing they were kind of really focused on was execution. And that's when you realize how important that is, right? You can have the best idea, whatever, but if you're not able to execute it properly, then, then it's never going to fly. The other thing I also learned though, is that sometimes if you get people that are only driven by just building their own thing and not really driven by actually what they're launching, that may also be kind of counterproductive, right? So you need to make sure that whatever you build is not only kind of all the money, you need to really believe in what you're doing, you need to have a very strong purpose. And yeah. so I think kind of one good learning is execution. the other good learning as well a bit, let's say maybe a bit less positive is you also need to make sure whatever you get something that is, there is a strong purpose in it.
0: Yeah, if I had to summarize my friends who work there, I would describe them or a lot of them as like, mercenary entrepreneurs, like they're not very mission driven. You know, they're not obsessed with the problem. They kind of looked at business opportunities in a spreadsheet and said, yep, this is a problem that we can solve. We can get rich. We can build a big, big company. That seems to be like the typical profile, but that could just be a stereotype as well. I think it's to a certain extent, it is quite accurate.
1: Then you have still some exceptions, right? Like if you look at the guys of HelloFresh, of Zalando, I think It went much beyond just execution and being mercenaries, like they really managed to create purpose-driven companies. So I think, I mean, for some of the companies that's definitely true. I think for some others, they still managed to kind of really adapt some American business models to, to the local markets and really managed to also, let's say assemble a team behind them. Yeah, I think, I mean, you have a bit of everything. I still believe there are a couple of exceptions here that, that really also made
0: Rocket quite a success back in the day. Now, a few other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them?
1: It's a good question, you know. When you sent me that PowerPoint, uh, I was like, okay, let's try to think about a founder I'm I'm really, I really admire. I think, I don't think quite, the first answer was like my mom, which is a bit weird. As an answer, I mean, I lost my brother 14 years ago, and after his death, she created a, a foundation raising... Uh, Friends for child cancer and kind of turning grief into something very positive was, I think, I mean, it's is really something I, I quite admire. But I think beyond that, if I look at really kind of more of a startup founder, there is a guy in France with the founder of um, a company called Alan, which is a health insurance company in France. It's not really very difficult to get into, but I to create essentially the first licensed health insurer in France since the past six years and creating a, a culture of like super high empowerment and with very focused teams and so on and so on. And the more we go into our own entrepreneurial journey with Clément, the more I, I believe like user projects is very, very powerful. And we, are, we can talk about that later and, and the role of empowerment and how and that becomes
0: increasingly important as the team gets bigger. But yeah, I think I would probably say that that it's, uh, it's okay. okay. You know, I lost my brother four years ago. So sounds like I you know, went through something maybe similar to what you've gone through. How do you deal with grief like that? And and how did something like that you know change you as a person? Because I know for me, like you know, it completely changed me. I'm like I'm a totally different person today than I was four years ago. So like, how did that change you? Well, I think it changes your whole
1: being essentially. It's it's. I mean, I mean, my brother was sick for a couple of years, right? So you essentially, as a as a teenager, you kind of jump a couple of years become a, an adult much quicker. So, I mean, that was actually like, let's say pretty performance. I think what it really created ultimately is learning what to value and like family is everything, close friends are everything, your kids are everything. And kind of really deciding where, what you want to spend your time on. And that includes your work life. Like, do you want to spend your life working at a corporate or do you want to build your own thing and really trying to drive an impact? I think this are, has these are some of the key things I learned another thing over the years is also kind of your resistance to facing difficult situations. I don't know if you face something similar, but when you've been through something very difficult in your life, it you can be losing a, a close one, it can be anything, it can be sickness, it can be whatever. But I think your tolerance for for pain is a lot higher, right? Which as an entrepreneur is actually pretty useful. Like if you have to take tough decisions, kind of going beyond the initial emotional stress of having to take a tough decision, becoming much easier because your benchmark has changed, right? Like you've been through quite a lot of suffering previously in your life. And I think that's, that really impacts that benchmark allows you you to take maybe, let's say, more difficult
0: decision. That's what I would say. I don't know. I don't know what you think yeah that's exactly how i've described it to people it's like you know it's not necessarily a good thing but it's like my pain threshold is so high now that when it comes to like okay. the normal day-to-day pain that you know exists for like running a startup or you know trying to grow a business like it almost to me some of that stuff just seems like a joke now you know where i like face these problems exactly. especially like you know shortly after his death like i would face these problems with like the business and be like what are we all wasting our time for like none of this shit matters at the end of the day so it gave me a very exactly. i think unique perspective and a, and a very I think overall, like, yeah, it's hard to say like there's positives, but that was one of those positives. It's like, you don't take things as seriously, or at least I don't take things as seriously as I used to. hundred percent. hundred percent. We're going to agree more. Let's switch gears now and let's talk about books. So there's an author here in the U S called Ryan holiday or named Ryan holiday, and he calls them quick books. So for him, a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? It's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm an avid reader, but I read quite a lot of business
1: books and and so on and so on. But I read more for my own pleasure. So I would say one that has really changed me as a person. I wouldn't say that. I think there is one recently that I'm reading, which I thought was super good, which is called Empowered by Marty Kagan. So about empowerment in product tech teams and so on and so on. I think it's a really interesting approach, especially coming from I mean, I used to work in consultancy in the past and we like kind of a very much V-cycle approach to product and tech, which honestly initially we kind of had, and so we're moving towards more kind of agile approach, more empowered, and I think there is a lot of things to be learned for non-technical founders in reading that book. And I would say that recently is probably the one that
0: has influenced me the most. If you're looking for pleasure from a book, what would be like a go-to book, or what's an example of a book that you read, let's say on like a, a recent vacation?
1: I love historical fiction, and uh, I quite like Ken Follett, which is, I mean, pretty standard, very known kind of author, but I love the historical part of it. Another one which is quite good is uh, Brandon Sanderson, more kind of sci-fi, weirdly somehow historical, uh, which I quite nice. And I would say this would be my kind of like two books that
0: I would bring into my audience. Nice. Let's switch gears here and let's dive deeper into the company. So how we like to begin this part of the interview is let's talk about the problem. So what problem do you solve?
1: I mean, let me take that business slightly differently, right? Like we solve a frustration. I think that's the way I would explain it, right? We are in a market which is just starting its digitization. So the art market as a whole has been fairly traditional. I mean, it's still fairly traditional as a matter of fact. And as the demographics are changing, there is kind of more e-commerce being brought into that market, and so on and so on. That's kind of one part of the equation. And within that change come also different expectations from buyers, right? And so people expect to be able to be to buy online, to have kind of online shipping and this kind of thing, right? And when we arrived at that market with, with Clément, my co-founder, what we realized was that, well, it's impossible to display an API, like a shipping API on an, on an arts e-commerce platform. And the reason for it is, was that it was impossible to get instant shipping rates. Everything was still very manual. Getting an answer to get a shipping rate was like 48 hours. Most of the time was super expensive because that's a market, which is fairly, I mean, which is not super competitive, right? So they were not really forced into kind of competing on price and we a fairly limited into geographical reach, right? So we kind of identified these three problems and we're like, wow, it's pretty weird that no one ever built some kind of a FedEx for the out market, like a one-stop shop where you can get instant
0: shipping rates, like competitive with a large geographical scope. And so yeah, that, that's, that's how we got into it. And I see you started the company in 2017. How did you uncover this problem? Did you just have like a, a bunch of Picassos and you were struggling to figure out how to ship them to like I your home, or
1: where was it? <laughs> I wish, I wish I did. No, 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 at no. all. I mean, it's quite a peculiar story. So when when we left Rocket Internet, we started to build a first business together, uh, which cr- we crashed, and um, and after that, I started to build a marketplace that was selling design items, and while I was kind of creating that platform. The deal with Clément was like, well, I start to build that stuff up. If that works, maybe he joins me in a year. And in the meantime, he we went to work for, uh, for a marketplace selling antiques. And so he had a lot of problems shipping antiques across the world, and a lot of problems shipping design attempts across the world, simply because they're like bulky, fragile, and valuable. And that means you need to find someone to pick it up, you need someone to pack it, then someone to ship it. And if you the only kind of go-to guys. With, that could help us. Where I find out shipping companies that were super expensive, and so the more we kind of had to deal with this issue repeatedly. I mean, I remember we're talking about it every morning at like 8:30 in the morning. Be like, wow, this is a nightmare. trading, no one ever thought about this. And after a while, the frustration was so strong. we well, again, maybe we should just call up a couple of people and understand if that's that's really an issue for other people. And so we called. Uh, quite a lot of antique dealers, fine art galleries, furniture manufacturers, and trying to really kind of frame, well, is, is there s- some kind of opportunity there? And that's, everybody essentially told us, yeah, I mean, there is, like, it's crazy expensive, it's eating up our margins, like, no one's doing anything about this, and so on and so on. So that's, that's how we got
0: into it. And is it entirely B2B, or is there a, a B2C angle here as well, or approach here as well?
1: There is a little bit of a B2C approach, but it's primarily B2B. I mean, like, the thing is, we work, like we sell our services to galleries, which then offer that service to collectors. Sometimes we have collectors coming in direct. So like, I don't know they used to work with us, they know us, they like us, and then they go through us even if they buy at a gallery we don't work with. So that happens, but I would say it's probably like less than 5%. I would say 95% are either galleries, auction houses, museums, art organizations, art advisory firms, interior designers I mean, you name it kind of like the
0: whole, scope of like the commercial side of the art and and design market you're talking here about physical art but isn't physical art dead i thought NFTs replaced everything
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a good one i mean that's one perspective that you can take thinking well nft is going to replace arts i actually believe that it's making the size of the art market significantly bigger the way you consume nfts or digital arts quite different from the way you enjoy kind of physical art and i think there is quite a lot of beauty and having like a nice painting on the wall or like a very nice culture and and kind of the emotion it makes you feel. Also, if you look at like historical pieces of art, so like standing in front of, I don't know, uh, like a whatever, but chili or whatever, painting, it will make you feel something because it's been created like 200 years ago. And I think this kind of feeling will never, will never really disappear. So I think as a matter of fact, it's just making NFTs and making the whole market, art market significantly more visible. And that kind of also what happened, like what we saw during COVID, right? Which was super interesting, like a lot of people that bought NFTs then were brought into some platforms that were selling not only NFTs but also art. And that brought like a lot of new buyers into the into the art market. So I think through COVID, partly through NFTs, but part like primarily through COVID, people were actually kind of browsing online and started to buy online. And so we had like like a lot of new buyers coming into the market. I remember one data was pretty interesting from uh, from one of our clients, that was like, "Well, as a matter of fact, whenever we we opened an online auction, forty percent of the buyers had new buyers because they had just no idea we even existed, or it was so simple to actually bid online and so on and so on." That's why, like long story short, I think like both kind of the NFT trend, and what happened during during COVID, has actually even quite a lot of new people to the market. Uh, so I think it's still
0: still quite alive and kicking. Yeah, it's, I feel bad for some of those people who bought into those NFTs. You know, I asked that question jokingly because I think what was that like two years ago that was all over the media that's all right, everyone uh, was talking about right it was like the jpegs are here nfts are here physical yeah. art's dead but i think if you look at the numbers that you know doesn't look too good for a lot of people who bought into that dream at least right now
1: yeah i mean maybe not right now i mean i certainly think it's a it's a trend that's meant to stay and stick around and so on and so on i think like the digital profile we all have now like is made for NFTs. And I think there will always be a market for it and things to continue to grow. I just think that the physical art market is still really strong. And, and the way it appeals to people and the way you feel when you're looking at like a painting or a sculpture and so on and so on will never be exactly the same as as for an NFT. But that that's my personal opinion, but future will tell.
0: Now let's imagine 10 years in the future, the company IPOs, you're worth billions of dollars. You can buy any art you want in the world. What would be like the number one piece of art that you'd want to buy from, or maybe like the number one artist that you would hope to, to buy art from someday? Wow, there are a lot of them.
1: Let me think about it. Well, I recently an artist I saw that I really like was what Sho is doing. They just had a, an exhibition at Union London, like really interesting kind of like taking the front page of the, of the New York Times and, and kind of painting on top of it using kind of colors about recent events. So it was that cover of the New York Times kind of painted in, in in kind of shades of orange to like, that was echoing to, to all the fires that happened in Hawaii and Greece and so on and so on. So I thought it was really, really powerful. So I would tend to say that this is one that I really like. There is another gallery in, in Paris, which is really cool, called Galerie Bayard. And they have a couple of really nice artists, which are more, let's say figurative. And so they've done a uh, thing with a guy called Thierry Carrier with really, really, yes. like, like really cool paintings. They've done things like they did thing with another artist called Johan Marianne, who's also really cool. What else can I tell you? Well, I think these are kind of like those things that come into my mind. I mean, but there are many, I kind of track every day. So it's, it's a bit hard just to like pinpoint a show. If I had billions, I would just build an entire collection
0: of like a lot, of, a lot of people that I actually admire. All right. I'm going to check back in, in 10 years and come swing by Geneva. And I hope to see a big palace full of your, all the art you've acquired. Yeah. Actually for an American one, Kehinde Wiley is really cool. Kehinde Wiley
1: is yeah. the, um, is the artist that did the portrait of Barack Obama. I don't mean, know mm, if, if yeah. that he's about. It's like, I think it's green with like some leaves in the back. Yep. I know what you're really, talking really about. Cool.
0: Yeah. Really, really cool artist. Nice. based on your success. And as you guys go into the market, what's that status quo and, you know, who is being disrupted? Well, increments have been disrupted, right? So we, we're not, like, fine shipping has
1: been around forever. Right? And I guess one of our oldest competitor was moving the, the artworks of Marie Antoinette, like the wife of Louis Sixteen. And so, like, they've been around for a really long time. They've been doing the same thing, the same way for a really long time. And I think when we're coming and, and changing in the way, essentially, they operate, right? So, we bringing technology into a market that didn't really have any, and whether it's like generating quotes really quickly through algorithms, whether it's reducing human errors through like a lot of automation, whether it's even just bringing things that basic and end-to-end tracking, which didn't exist before we arrived on the market. Like these are all things that I always say kind of elevating the final shipping market as a whole. And so the idea for us in some way, kind of create the blueprint of uh, the modern final shipper, right? So we are bringing the level of the final shipping industry up to today's demand, right? But also the idea is for us to anticipate those of tomorrow. And what that means is right now, the market is going through digital transformation. What are kind of some of the easy tools that an auction house or gallery can use to generate shipping prices? In the future, will this product be exactly the same? Likely not, like I think the market's moving towards what I call more an api of of the market, right? So there will be significantly more e-commerce in the future, Rightly, is kind of the, the kind of fulfillment process after you buy an artwork will be significantly more digitized. And so that's kind of what we're changing significantly. And the incumbents, I mean, we are challenging the incumbents from that perspective in the sense that if you want to be able to still be able to operate tomorrow, you need to make sure that you adapt to the collective expectation of today and of tomorrow. And I think that's why it's super interesting that again, that demographic shifts, which is happening between kind of like the older generation exiting the market and kind of the new one coming in that grew up an iPhone in the hands, like ordering stuff on Amazon and so on and so on. Like it will be like, their expectation will be significantly different. And there is definitely a shift that needs to be made, which, which we are. We, hopefully we, we are,
0: it's say, creating, right? And I could be wrong here. You know, this is my outsider view. I don't know too much about the space, but when I think about like the world of fine art, I imagine a very you know, close knit community or, or group that's resistant to change and probably not open to outsiders coming in to try to change and, and disrupt things. Is that an accurate view of the space? And if that's accurate, what did you do to you know break into that market and capture the attention of that market and, and get people to be you know, open to trying a different solution? Interesting. So I think there is. I mean, as
1: in any market, you have some people that are resistant to change. I think more so in the art market, which is tends to be more conservative. Primarily because buyers tend to be like from, let's say older generations and so on and so on. But in general, at least, I mean, since COVID we really seeing uh, like we really shift. Uh, like people want to change. People want to go more digital. Every large art organization we talk to is thinking about how to offer a better experience to their clients and so on and so on. Right. So I think from that perspective, we really see that like people want to change. And I think kind of like the, let's say conservatism that you used to see in the market is actually kind of exiting to a certain extent. It's difficult and we actually did that progressively. We did not go straight to the art market. I think it would have been, honestly, it would have been impossible for us to work with some of the names, like which are essentially household names we work with today. And the only way for us to be able to do that was kind of do that progressively, right? So when we started, we primarily targeted antique dealers in like, Pirates in London, in a flea market in Paris, in Parma, in, in Italy, where you have like these very large kind of antique shows. And then we saw like these guys kind of started ordering with us. At some point, we got contacted by by First Dips um, in the US. We're like, guys, would be great if we could work together. So we started to work with them. And actually, some collectors we're working for recommended us to, uh, to a couple of really large auction houses. They cannot name, but uh, there are not so many. And so, at some point, these auction like two of these auction houses started to reach out to us and be like, "Well, we heard you doing great work for antique things. We have, you know, also, I mean, we sell actually like the vast majority of what we sell is below, let's say, hundred thousand dollars. It's something it looks like you could manage. How about we do a couple of trials?" And so, we started to work a bit with these auction houses, and as we got, a, a, let's say, accustomed to their expectations, we also started to adapt our services, which is. Probably something we've been doing for the past two three years, right? Like kind of splitting the offering, having one which is a historical one, targeting, let's say, artworks, anti guidance, design furniture below hundred K and kind of going in the expectation above that that threshold. And so we've really done that kind of progressively, talking to our clients, understanding what were the expectations, modifying our processes, modifying the, the suppliers we work with, making sure that we cater exactly to what they were they were expecting of us. And so right now we get to a level where we can essentially transport any kind of artwork, but that really, we really did that progressively. I mean, if I'm being honest, in the first six months of the life of the company, the, if if an item was more than 20,000, we would really think twice before shipping it. We're like, wow, that's actually pretty fragile. If we do that, the company is going to die. And we had no funding in the beginning. So we're like, okay, well, do we take the risk? Do we not take the risk? And then I think kind of progressively we got a lot more confident. We got the confidence of our clients and yeah. So yeah, very, very progressive, step-by-step, client-focused approach over the past six years brought us where we are. What's the most expensive piece that you've shipped so far? I mean, we, we acquired a company that ships some really expensive stuff. So I'm, I'm not going to count them in. But they've done like crazy hundreds of millions kind of paintings. So that's kind of that level. I think with Conveilio as an entity, the one I'm thinking of, it's, which is probably the most expensive one, is $30 million, $30 million. So yeah, as an entity for computers, this one, for the company we acquired in London, yeah, it's, it's
0: insane in terms of value, yeah. And what are you doing as a, a $30 million piece of art is being shipped? Or are you just sitting there like refreshing your screen, hoping that everything goes according to plan? Like, what's that like for you behind the scenes? No, I mean, actually it's, I mean, I won't say it's stress-free because
1: we still need to be really careful about what you're doing, but we have very strong processes by now. We automated a lot of things, kind of all the things that are, that can go wrong, are really limited to the minimal. And we have a very well-trained team. So as a matter of fact, like, I mean, if it's a pretty painting, for sure, so my, uh, my co-founder of Clément, who obviously all of the operations, will be kind of really making sure that everything goes smoothly. But the way we're going to pick up the item and create it, like everything is really, really calculated beforehand. We know exactly what we're doing, we know exactly who we're working, we know exactly where the, the merchandises. It's obviously like you have what we call tarmac assistance as well as you bring the artwork into the plane and, and so on and so on. So I won't say I'm not stressed sometimes, sometimes that happens, but I think in, in the really vast majority of cases, I mean, we've, we've been doing that now for quite a long time. So it yeah, it's, I would say it's, it's pretty smooth. That's what I would say. Let's talk about the acquisition. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I think. So yeah, we did our first acquisition this year and we closed that back in March. We acquired a company based in the UK that does really kind of premium fine art shipping. And that was driven by a couple of elements, right? The first one is that the the final shipping market in London is is fairly consolidated right? And our model historically has been that we work with a couple of companies that do the let's say pick up of the artwork, other that do the creating and it's let's say relatively divided to make sure that we can really kind of pick the best guys for pick the best guys for the creating and so on and so on. But in the UK, it's so consolidated that actually a lot of the final shippers do everything themselves, like they pick up, they create the ship. And so a lot of our former suppliers at some point were competing with us. And so we're like, well, if we really want to grow that market, which is one of the largest markets in the world, we need to have operations on the ground. And so we kind of scouted around and we started to work with that company called Connoisseur, and they would, honestly, like from an operational perspective, was so mind blown. we're like, well, we have to continue to work with them and and so kind of progressively over the, I mean, we've worked with them in total for I think a year and a half before we acquired them and we've really been able to see them at work. And and now for us and for our presence in London, it's really, like, it's really also changing the perception from a market perspective. So people really understand kind of, you know, that hundred million painting, like, or whatever, 200 million painting, like we can ship this kind of stuff. We have all the assets, all the security, all the processes also at a, at a deeper level from what we had before, you know, so like there is still quite a difference between shipping a $30 million dollar painting, and a hundred dollar painting, and, and, you know, they kind of helping us bridging that gap, so it's, uh, it's great. I mean, they, they're bringing together also 30 years of experience,
0: which is, uh, yeah, so, so that was probably the reason why we decided to acquire them. What was the most difficult part of that process? And that could be you know, the process of acquiring the company or the, the integration after you acquired them. What was like the most difficult period of time for you or some of the specific challenges that you faced when you did the acquisition? I mean, integration is always the most difficult. I mean, I've
1: rarely heard integration going like super smoothly. And I mean, for us, honestly, it's still like a relatively small acquisition. It's a, it's a small team, but I think like whether you look at like, I mean, processing is pretty okay because we are, we're similar processes, but the way you kind of communicate between the teams, probably because they, we have different IT systems, they have kind of legacy IT systems. So we need to transfer them to our system. And if that doesn't work, then maybe we need to find kind of an alternative solution for a certain period of time before we're able to really kind of move everyone to the same system. I think integrations are always a lot more difficult than just negotiating a deal and signing it because then you know we have to kind of fix all these teething issues. But yeah, we're going to the bottom of it now, which is great. But yeah, it's always it's always difficult. And I think the only advice I could say is like make sure there's just one person in charge of kind of coordinating that whole thing, which is which is something we did. So now we have one person in charge of doing a great job in the UK. Kind of really making sure that you know whatever teething issue is being brought up, be getting prioritized and we tackle it and then we really kind of go one by one. Yes, but for sure integration.
0: Yeah, I think if anyone says integration is easy, they're either delusional or full of shit or, or maybe both, <laughs> but I don't think anyone can truthfully say that an integration was, you know, flawless, no headaches, you know, exactly as planned. I, I don't think that really exists. Yeah, I, I, same. I think I think it's the most, and honestly, again, it was like a, it's, it's a
1: fairly small team that I imagine, like we're talking about it with my co-founder not so long ago, we're like imagine like two companies with tens of thousands of people that are merging together and like all the things that you have to do. I'm like, I mean, that must be a nightmare to manage. But, yeah, I mean, we we're not there yet.
0: We're not there yet. I just listened to like a, a four-hour podcast on uh, LVMH and Arno. How do you say his last name? Arno. Arno Bernard Arno. Yeah, yeah I, think yeah. I listened to the same one. The required, like the required one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good one. Very good one. So good. But yeah, those types of acquisitions he's doing, it's such an insane story. I, I can't even imagine operating at that scale. Like, yeah, the pain of the complexity there is just a completely different universe and different level. Yeah, obviously. And even I mean,
1: though I think in decades he still try, if I remember well the podcast, and still try to keep relatively independent companies from one another and so on and so on, but it's still honestly super impressive. Like what they build is yeah, mind blowing, honestly. Yeah,
0: it's fascinating. In terms of growth and just you know, the scale you're operating at today, are there any numbers that you can share? Well, we don't share much numbers just because of competition, honestly. But what I can
1: tell you is over the first five years, we grew at an average of more than 100% year on year. So that's been going pretty fast. I think over the past 12 months or so, we purposefully kind of slowed down. Also, like, like the whole market changed for a lot. So we raised our Series B in, in March last year. Like essentially before all the shit went down and like the whole kind of change in macroeconomic environment and so on and so on. And so what we realized was like, okay, well, we need to be very careful about the way we spend that money because we got really lucky. We have all of that cash. Now we need to make sure that it's spent wisely. And so what we did was, okay, let's grow not as fast. Let's just really try to optimize the operations that we have. Let's try to automate as much as possible, and then we'll start to accelerate again. And so we kind of arriving to that stage where we're like, okay, now I think we can start to accelerate again. But yeah, essentially kind of 100% plus growth over the past five years, with like like that went down to 30% plus, and now it like we hope that it's going to go back again, like plus
0: 50% plus 60% also next year. If you were starting the company again today from scratch, based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Well, ask yourself
1: whether or not you, want, you need a raise. Uh, I think that's probably, I think, I mean, raising is something, especially, let's say maybe five six years ago, that was quite fantasized and well, it's pretty cool that you can tell your friend, you have investors and you have a board and blah, 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 yeah. And I think there are definitely some businesses that need to have investors, right? Like if you're building your SaaS, like people are saying you need up to three years to really have a SaaS that's kind of like finding product market fit. That's good enough that people really want to buy it and so on and so on. I think in, in a in a business like us, which is significantly more transactional, I think you can leave without investors for an extended period of time, up to the point where we're like, okay, now if you really want to go fast, like you start to really go fast, right? We, in the end, we raised we raised fairly early, so nine months after we raised, we started. And I think now kind of looking at like, I mean, I do a bit of angel investing and so on and so on. And What I tend to say is, if you want to optimize for valuation, if you want to optimize for ownership, it's like you have a lot of ways to kind of raise that, especially like in Europe, in you can raise carbon debt and so on and so on. And you can kind of use that and push the company as, as fat as possible, as long as possible to make sure that you optimize for valuation and therefore for ownership down the line. So I think that would be probably one kind of when you start and the second one is recruiting. Uh, but uh, yeah, we can talk about that as well. Do you wish you had waited longer than, longer
0: than that nine months now in hindsight?
1: Yeah, in hindsight, I think so. Yeah, I think we should have waited, we should have waited longer. I and mean, then we, we raised, we. I don't think we invested very wisely the the initial money that we received. I think we could have done that differently. I mean, I think it's also linked to experience, right? Like that was the first company we were creating that was kind of really working. And so you kind of try stuff and you make mistakes. And I mean, you also raise money to make mistakes, but I think you typically would make less mistakes if you're less cash constraints, right? So it would force you to really deeply understand what your clients are expecting you on and kind of really delivering on only these few things. And being a bit smarter about the way you spend money. And I think, kind of, in hindsight now, if I were to start again, I would wait much longer and really kind of focus on the client needs, iterate really quickly, shorten iteration cycles, and so on and so on, up to the point where I'm like, okay, now
0: I feel ready. I can really kind of go fast and really start to invest and so on. Yeah. Now we are almost up on time. So we'll just do one final question here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? What's it going to look like three to five years from today? Very good question. So our mission is to move art forward. Move art forward means moving
1: and in, the, in that case, shipping. And, but it's also about kind of moving the arts industry forward. And and so we see that twofold, right? Like on the shipping side, is there is definitely a lot of opportunities for us to continue to, to expand geographically. So we are, we are in Paris, we're in London, we're in New York. And Hong Kong is another big hard hub where we're starting to operate from right now. But there are also kind of many other hubs where we can do things. And and I think from that perspective, it's up to us to kind of decide at some point: do we want to continue on the model which we have, which is essentially primarily asset lights, uh, but in the UK, or do we want to actually start to invest a lot more into assets? And I think assets are, in certain instances, like I mentioned earlier, like in the UK, it can make sense in certain instances. And I think we're likely to do to do a bit more of that. On the other side, and kind of looking more at distribution, the way we distribute our product is through platforms. So you go on our platform, we put like. Address, address, whatever you need in shipping quotes. And we started to also offer an API. And I think if we look at the way the art market is moving towards more e-commerce, so towards more digitalization, I think we will continue to develop significantly more products on the software side that allows us to distribute our shipping services significantly more efficiently. So yeah, kind of these two two axes, kind of consolidating the geographical uh, coverage that we have. And on the other side, is developing more and more products to make sure that we can distribute our services more effectively. Amazing.
0: I love the vision here. I I love the approach that you're taking, and I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are just listening in and want to follow along with your journey, where should they go?
1: I have an Instagram account. Uh, It's my name, Edward, written the French way, E-D-O-U-A-R-D-G-O-U-I-N. And yeah, that's if there is one place
0: where they can find me, it's probably here or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Edward, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. Likewise, same for me. Thank you very much.